Hey, Howard Jacobson here. Welcome to today's Plant Yourself podcast. A quick reminder, this podcast is free for everyone and supported by patrons. So if you would like to find out about becoming a patron of the show and helping us out, helping defray the cost, helping to spread the message, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. Thanks so much and enjoy today's episode. Hey, everyone, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. And this is an attempt to get back to normal a little bit. It's an actual interview with an actual fascinating guy with a great story. And so I've been doing, you know, these daily uh, COVID-19 lockdown ruminations. And so it's nice to start to get back to a um, the, the original mission of the show, which was not just to share my thoughts, but to introduce you to amazing, wonderful, inspiring people. Uh, and today's guest is no exception. His name is Michael Schwartz, and he is the founder of Treeline Cheese, which is a, a nut-based, a plant-based cheese company that has been growing by leaps and bounds. And to be honest, the reason that I wanted to interview him really had nothing to do with the cheese, but with his um, his childhood, his past, his family legacy. His father, uh, Harry Schwartz, was one of the leading figures in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. He was a lawyer. Uh, who actually represented, I think, one or two of the defendants in the famous Ravonia trial, which was the trial in which Nelson Mandela was sentenced to all those years in prison. Uh, apparently, Harry Schwartz's client or clients got off. So I don't know whether he chose well or whether Nelson Mandela would have had a very different life trajectory if Harry had been his lawyer. But we t I talked to Michael about what it was like to grow up in that household, what it was like to be essentially an enemy of the state, to be uh, surveilled, to be uh, to see injustice all around him and have a very limited palette of expression to deal with it, which, as it turns out, really informed his journey to veganism. And really fascinating looking at the parallels, not necessarily between the systems of injustice themselves, but in terms of how one responds to a system of injustice that is so deeply entrenched in, one, in your society that most people can't see it, don't see it. And are you going to drive yourself crazy by fighting it every minute of every day? Or do you pick your battles? Or how do you become an activist? So that's essentially the conversation that we ended up having, that we talk a lot about the history of South Africa. Um, we talk about the dairy industry and and why Michael finds it so objectionable, and of course, why why I do as well. And so I hope you really enjoy this conversation. A couple of things before we get started. One is, I'm so grateful to all the people who have been supporting uh, plant yourself, supporting the show, supporting the mission, supporting me and my family, especially as we were in that uh, limbo in South Africa, unable to get out. So we're back in the States. And if you would like to continue um, gifting um, support for the show, you can do so. There's a tip jar at plantyourself.com slash gift. Um, also, Josh and I have a new book, uh, Use the Weight to Lose the Weight. It's a buck ninety nine, I think, on Amazon, but we couldn't get the audiobook up on Audible due to various technical issues, so I self-published it. And you can find that at sicktofit.com slash badass. And that's Josh reading Use the Weight to Lose the Weight, a uh, 
an uncensored, straight look at what it was like to lose the weight by becoming a runner and the not so pretty sometimes journey and challenges that Josh faced so that other people might also benefit from from his experience. Uh, finally, the new WellStart coach training program is going to begin on May 11th, and you can find out all about that and sign up for an enrollment interview at wellstartcoach.com. All right, so let's jump in right now with our interview with Treeline Cheese's Michael Schwartz. Michael Schwartz, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Uh, hi, thank you. I'm very happy to be here and happy to meet you and share with you. Yeah, so we, we've been planning this for a while, but it uh, it looked like, first of all, you were going to be in South Africa, and then I was going to be in South Africa, and then I couldn't get out of South Africa. So obviously, a lot has, has happened in the world and in our lives since we, we first planned to have a discussion about, uh, you know, plant-based cheeses and all that. But um, the thing that really interested me about your story is a kind of an evolution from a family very involved in human rights to expanding the mission uh, into alternate forms of dairy. And I wonder if you could kind of, you know, start by connecting the dots. Like, what? Tell me, like you, you grew up in a uh, in a family that was very politically active in South Africa, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, my parents were involved in the fight against apartheid uh, from immediately after World War II. Uh, my father was a refugee from the Nazis, and they, his, he and his family fled to South Africa in the 1930s. And so as soon as he could enlist, he joined the um, South African Air Force, and saw combat in Europe, and you know he felt terribly strongly about ending the the Nazi um, regime. And when he came back from the war, he was shocked to find that the um, apartheid w was starting to take hold in South Africa. And uh, you know he's now uh, passed away, but I, I, I remember talking to him about why he went into politics, and he said mm -hmm. that. The night the Nationalist Party won the election, he, he was so um, emotionally distraught, having come back from the war, that he was determined to do something to change that. Mm. And, so this and it didn't it didn't occur to him to just emigrate again, like after, you know, Europe was kind of burned to the ground and the, the rise of fascism there seemed so inexorable. I'm curious, like what? Do you do you have a sense of what made him say I'm gonna I'm gonna stand my ground here and try to build something better? You know, now that you asked that question, I wish I'd asked him that question. <laughs> it didn't really occur to him. I think he felt very committed to his his new home mm. because the, South Africa had taken in Jews from Europe, and I'm I'm really just speculating, but I think he wasn't. He felt a debt like a debt to the country. I think mm. that's what he was thinking. Mm. And, and South Africa was was such a complicated place at that time around the, you know, the British uh, who were, I guess, who were in charge of the country. And there was a lot of resentment based you know, from the Boer War and the concentration camps. And also the British were fighting Hitler. But the, yeah. like the, it's, it seemed like it, the, there was, you know, 
very confusing ties and loyalties on all sides. That's that's very insightful of you. I think that's exactly what was going on. I, I would not give the Afrikaners a pass because of the British, in the sense that there's no question they were racists. Um, but I think the British have, have kind of got away quite lightly historically hmm. because they did they did start the concentration camps. They did um, deprive black people of rights in South Africa. This was not an invention of the Afrikaners. Um, and just for people who are watching or listening, the concentration camps in, in, interned Afrikaans women and children and more, and this was in order to try and um, win the, the Boer War. And it, at, by the end of the war, more women and children had died in the camps than soldiers in combat. Mm. And, you know, people don't really like to talk to the, about this, but it's it's true. And it's it's a shameful stain on the on the British government. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, yeah. I got a yeah. bit sidetracked. Like <laughs> no, no, that's great. That that's very useful historical context for for folks. My 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 wife grew up Afrikaans in Bloemfontein, so right. so I, um, you know, from from that community, there is still you know 110 years later a lot of bitterness. Oh, you can't blame them for that because what was done to them was absolutely appalling. Right. So, and it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a shame that so few British people know about it. They, they generally don't even learn about it in history. It's like it never happened. Right. And one, I guess one of the, you know, one of the lessons of history is that people who are hurting hurt other people. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's true. So, yeah. so, um, so your, your dad became involved in politics. Was he a lawyer? Yeah, so he he went to law school um, under what was then the equivalent of the South African equivalent of the GI Bill of Rights, and he was in fact at in the same class at law school with Nelson Mandela. And the the class there's a there's a photograph that can be found on the internet of that class, and it was tiny. There maybe <laughs> were a dozen people, so everybody obviously knew each other. Um, and he, he was a lawyer. He ended up defending one of the co-defendants in the Ravonia trial, which saw um, Mandela imprisoned along with a, a, a lot of other people. And my father's client, luckily, was one of two who actually was acquitted. Huh. Um, but in any case, he and my mother really um, made a, a commitment in their lives to trying to end apartheid. And just to cut to the chase, I think that that sense of service and also of right and wrong was something that was instilled in me from a very early age. And I've it didn't take a lot for me to say, well, there's, if there's injustice, it, it, there's... It's injust. It's, if there's injustice against people, injustice also applies to any sentient being. And so, I think my experience growing up in that kind of household, in a very kind of extreme 
environments in the country directly um, led to my giving up eating animal products and wearing animal products and then to trying to change things by starting this company. Hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to connect the dots. I just want, I want to go back. I'm, I still have so many more questions but, uh, um, just about the political issue. So, I mean, one, one thing I'm wondering about is uh, what were there repercussions for your family in terms of, you know, feeling endangered, feeling uh, persecuted or not having opportunities or even just within your community? Because I know that you know the Jewish community in South Africa was especially the ones who came you know, around the turn of the century from Lithuania. A lot of them felt lucky to be classified as white, and and so I'm wondering, like, with your your life growing up, did you feel you know safe and part of the country, or um, <laughs> you know ostracized in some ways? It, it wasn't easy. Uh, I can't claim to be a victim in the sense that as a white person, I had privilege. There's mm -hmm. no question about that. I went to a school of whites only. Uh, I went to university, which was probably 90% white. Uh, there's no question we were privileged. But as a kid, it was really hard because we were always on the margins. And I'll give you an example. When I... I used to play rugby and we used to go to play other schools on a bus. And I remember coming back at the end of a match and it was in the early evening and um, we were all in the bus and there were black people would be walking um, home from work on the sidewalks. I remember these kids, the white rugby playing kids, putting their heads out the window and spitting at the black workers. Mm. And you know, I felt, sitting on the bus, I felt so powerless that I couldn't fight a hundred kids who were doing this. And I remember sitting with my friend who was, had the same views as me and, and just going, how is this happening? How, how, you know, this is so horrible. And, you know, I felt very alienated from people because of it. Um, I, I, at an early age, I tried to kind of do things that would change and, and behave in a way that was sensitive and caring and would, would often find that the kids at school would ridicule me for that. Mm -hmm. um, when I was at university, I was involved in uh, politics, which was fairly intense. And, you know, we, we were constantly under surveillance. Um, I remember once in South Africa back in the 70s and 80s, having a telephone was a big deal. It was very hard to get a phone. Mm. And it was, it was very hard to get your phone fixed if it broke because the, the post office had the monopoly for telephones. And uh -huh. so if the phone broke, it could be out of order for weeks and weeks. And one weekend, a guy knocked on our door and he said, I've come to rewire the phones. And he spent the whole day rewiring our phones. And it was so obvious they were bugging our house. <laughs> because no one got that service. Uh -huh. Available. We never even asked for it. <laughs> and we, we lived where we couldn't have a conversation in our own house. Um, 
Uh, so it wasn't just bugging the phones, but bugging the walls as, as well. It was everything. I don't know for sure what was in there. We, we never checked, but I, I, it just seemed so kind of crazy that suddenly a technician showed up and needed to rewire our, our phone system. And when we made phone calls, always the moment someone in the family would say something controversial, someone would have to say, let's not talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, we de definitely, when I was at university, we were under surveillance. I was under surveillance. The 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 um, head of the security police was determined to find a way of getting at my father through his kids, and they did this to one of his colleagues, Alex Borain, who's he was in Parliament with my father, and uh, they arrested his son, and then brought that up in Parliament, and every time he got up to speak, they would start taunting him that his son was a traitor and a communist, and you know. We, we felt that was almost inevitable with me and my brothers. Mm. So it, it was it wasn't a nice way to live. It also I mean, another example is we would always be um, faced with these situations where we try to live in a, a normal way, but we couldn't. So one night we were out doing something and the, the guy who worked for us in our house was with us and we wanted to stop for dinner. And I, I remember as a kid, um, we went to this burger place and we ordered burgers. It was like a drive-in and there was a place where you could sit. And I, the, the, this guy who worked for us said, well, I'll eat in the car. And as a, like a seven-year-old, I said, no, come and eat with us. And he said, no, I can't. It's, you know, that, that that has an impact on you. Mm. I, I wasn't the victim like he was, but it still had an impact. Now, you know, you talked about the being on the bus and, the, and the, your white rugby mates spitting on black people. Were you, and how powerless you felt, were, were you able in apartheid to actually make the acquaintance of and friendship of, of blacks? Or were they a theoretical... Uh, you know, oppressed group. Yeah, it was very difficult. You know, at school, at high school, you know, we were completely segregated. Um, I, at university, there were maybe two blacks in the entire class. I studied engineering, and I think there were two in our class. And I've got a good story about that, by the way. If you <laughs> yes, please. Um, so it was very hard to have any kind of normal relationship with blacks. I, I had a, a friend when I was a, maybe six or so, um, and he used to come over to my house and play and swim. And then one day he just disappeared. And it's because he wasn't allowed to live in the same area, the same neighborhood. He had to go off to some so-called homeland. So our friendship just came to an abrupt end. You know, and that, that's, I, I guess, in South Africa, that was the only black friend I had was aged maybe six years old. Mm. So uh, uh, here's, here's my story. If you've got a moment, I'll share this with you. Yeah. So, um, when I was at university, there was an a, a organization which still exists called the Institute for Race Relations. 
And one of the things they did is they uh, got permission from the university to use empty classrooms on weekends to help um, supplement the education of black kids, particularly in science and mathematics. So I signed up to be a science teacher. And <laughs> it was so depressing because the class, they came in with such poor education that I felt that they just were not getting it. And one time I set a test for them and there was one guy in the class who got an A and the rest got close to zero. They just were so lost in, in, in physics. Anyhow, many years later, I was on a plane from Johannesburg to New York and this guy comes and sits next to me and I immediately, like, you know, when someone sits next to you on the plane, you want to sleep and you think, oh, geez, is he going to talk to me? Is he going to snore? You know, <laughs> <laughs> And I was feeling pretty negative about it, but we got chatting and it turned out he was a senior engineer with ESCOM, which is the electricity utility. And he was on his way to um, Mali in order to design, a, help them design a power plant. And it turned out he was in my class, not my class, but at, at engineering school about two years behind me. He was one of the few black people. And I, I, I then mentioned to him these classes that I used to teach, and I, I told him how frustrated I was and how I felt I was just wasting my time. And he, he looked at me and he laughed and he said, you weren't wasting your time at all. And he said, I was in one of those classes. And he <laughs> was in my class, but he said, and I can show you any number of doctors, lawyers, accountants, engineers who owe their careers and their, their, their success to getting that extra help. And it, it just struck me. At first, it made my day. It was like one of the biggest hmm. things that anyone could ever tell me. But it just made me realize that things you do actually do make a difference. You know, you might think it doesn't make a difference, but it does. And hmm. even it's the way you eat, the way you, what kind of clothes you buy, the way you treat people just in a daily your daily life. It does make a difference. Yeah. And that, that must have been, I'm imagining for, for you, um, something of a very uh, liberating revelation to grow up in the shadow of a father who was, you know, like his, he was on a stage writ large, right? Like he was, he was fighting against, you know, Terra Blanc, he was in Parliament. He he became a you know the the first I think the the first opposition party uh, ambassador to the United Nations. Like you know to say the little things I do can make a big difference too. I'm one you know because you know I grew up. My father was not of the same stature, but he was a local you know regional political figure. He was on the newspaper and on the television and I just I had that same sense that well he's doing big things and nothing I'm doing measures up. I'm wondering like your you know your your navigation of that. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And um I I would always defer to him in that I felt that he had the platform and it wasn't up to me to destroy that platform. 
In other words, by, by my getting involved in politics, I could have adversely affected his, his standing. And that was a restraint on me. Hmm. I didn't do a lot of things that I, I might have, <laughs> like go to jail. <laughs> but um, but um, that's right. And I think that it's, it's important for everybody to realize that you, you can only do what you can do. And the fact that you can't do something huge doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything. Mm. Um, so let's let's uh, let's transition a little bit to to the arc of of your career. So you talked about like expanding from just from humans to all sentient beings. Did you grow up around animals? Like how did how did the non-human world enter your consciousness? Yeah, so we always had dogs, and um, my mother was somebody who always was willing to take in a stray, whether it was a stray person or a stray animal. Hmm. The first dog that I remember was actually a stray and had had puppies in our house. And so, um, and, and one thing that's quite sad, uh, I think, is that you know, anybody who came to our house during that apartheid era who knocked on the door with a hard luck story got something from my parents. And when apartheid ended and um, the kind of crime started growing badly in South Africa, my mother one day said to me, you know, what really hurts me is that I'm scared to open the door to people these days. Mm. I had the same conversation with other woman of her generation who said exactly the same thing but mm-hmm. that's an aside so animals you know there was always a bird with a broken wing or you know there was always <laughs> something in our house and my mother definitely encouraged me and my brothers to to care about these animals my family was by no means vegan or even vegetarian mm-hmm. but I did grow up around animals I see. so it sounds like there was this ethos of we don't put lives on a hierarchy, right? Like like South Africa was all about which bodies are worth more, which bodies get more rights. And it seems like that the, the, the kind of obliteration of that uh, of that hierarchy allowed you to say that there's there's no place for me to stand where I can judge one better than the other or more deserving than the other. Yeah, I think that's right. And and there's another thing, and that is that the vast majority of people around us were perfectly happy with apartheid. They, if you ask them, do they like it or not like it? A lot of them would say, we don't like it, but we just go along with it. Mm-hmm. And what I got out of my experience was that you don't have to go along with things just because other people are doing them. And I think that was the big, the big thing that... that even if it can be difficult and uncomfortable at times, you, you just don't have to accept the status quo. And that, that, that was really the big one. And, and obviously underlying that was the sense that everybody's equal, that there aren't some people who are special and have special privileges because of their skin color or religion or, you know, uh, uh, who, they, who their parents are, that sort of thing. Mm. So, um, what, what year did you go vegan? Oh, that's a good question. I uh, <laughs> it's probably fifteen years ago. 
Okay, so so like two thousand five or so. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I, I I stopped eating meat in nineteen eighty seven. Ah, and um, that I remember very clearly because it coincided with my taking the Texas bar exam, <laughs> <laughs> and um, <laughs> I, I then was living in a sort of denial for many years about the dairy industry and eventually I think that the information on the internet was so compelling that I just realized I couldn't live in denial anymore. Mm. But still, I think for for many of us, especially in the 80s and 90s, you know, to to go vegetarian was the revolutionary step, right? At least in our our own, and and, and you said in Texas, so like I'm wondering, like you know, you're already from this family that's that's Jewish, that's anti-apartheid. Did your parents feel like you know why are you making more tourists for yourself? Why like you know veganism still is not very big in South Africa. You know, we were we were talking by by email about rescheduling this, and I was saying like I can't. It's really hard to find anything to eat. You know where where, where I was under this lockdown. Um, did it, did it, was it just like a private thing, like I'm not going to do it anymore, or was it sort of a public declaration of identity at that point? Um, well, going vegetarian, I think, was a sort of a public declaration. And um, it's funny because my parents, as as, as uh, committed as they were to human rights and as much as they loved animals in the house, they don't get the whole... <laughs> They didn't get the, the vegetarian thing, and they—they, they, I, I know they found it pretty annoying, and I think my mother still does. Oh. <laughs> With going vegan, it was more like a like an just a progression where I just slid into going vegan, and one day said, "I'm just not buying cheese anymore." You know. Mm. Okay, and um, so as. I don't know as as you when you first went vegetarian and as you as you progressed, did you find a community? Like, how did that affect your life outside of what you put into your mouth? Yeah. So in in I was living in Dallas and I connected with a group there called the Animal Connection of Texas, and I have to say that the people in that group were amazing. And were, it was very supportive and and helpful because in 1987 in Dallas, it was pretty much, you know, finding vegetarian food was hard. And I, I once, I was, I was a lawyer and I had to go on a, a lunch with some clients and I, I said to the waiter, you know, have you got anything vegetarian? And the client across the table from me said, you're vegetarian, so where'd you get your meat? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? I don't eat meat. He said, no, you don't understand. Where do you get your meat? And after a while, I realized he meant protein. And <laughs> it was so, like, meat and protein were synonymous. Uh-huh. And so having that, the animal connection of Texas, you know, they'd have potlucks and things like that. That was really, really very helpful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so... You you went to law school in in the United States. 
Yes. Um, did you live here for a while after that, or did you return to South Africa? No, I, I went to law school. I practiced law in, in Dallas for a few years, and then I moved to England. I lived in London for a while, and then came back and lived in New York, New Jersey. Gotcha. Oh, where in New Jersey? Uh, all over, in Princeton and in Bergen County. Oh, I, I lived in Princeton from uh, like 83 to 2005. We definitely overlapped. Oh, about nineteen ninety. Huh? Okay. Did you go? Did you, did you go to the Jewish Center? Uh, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> I was when I was in college. I, I taught at the Jewish Center, and then I led um, the high holiday services at Princeton University. I went to those. Oh, I was the cantor. <laughs> really. It's a blank. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sing. So you'll have to take my take my word for it. Wow. Yeah, nice. that was with uh, first we had Eddie Feld, who was the rabbi, and then uh, Jim Diamond. You know, it's a it's a blank. I, I did go to the Rosh Hashanah service, and it was sort of upstairs somewhere in a building on the campus. I don't, it's, okay. I used to do it at the at Alexander Hall, so there was a there was a uh, an upstairs gallery. Okay, <laughs> that's funny. Um, all right, so so you were a practicing lawyer, obviously. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe are you still practicing, or you 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 started a company, a plant based company? Like how did that how did that come about? <laughs> well, I so I um, was practicing law. I did intellectual property law, and I. Um, at, at some points, I just felt like I'd run out of steam, and I, I felt that I'd lost my passion. And I said to myself, would you want a lawyer who's lost his passion? And I, when I answered that question, I said, well, then you've got to phase yourself out of this. Now, I'm still licensed as a lawyer, as a patent attorney in a New York. Um, I'm licensed in New York. Uh, but towards the end of my law practice, I started a business with one of my clients and we we were very successful in a very short time, which gave me a big cushion for some other explorations. And so I looked around and tried to find something that I could do that I felt really passionate about. And that's really how I started the company because I, I liked cheese. I liked to eat cheese. I um, used to travel to Europe a lot for work and eat really great French and Italian cheeses. And I, 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 I thought, well, why not combine that uh, love of food with something that's going to really change the world? And you know, if I give people something that they really love, then it's going to be a lot easier for them to give up the dairy. And that's a powerful force for change. Hmm. So did you know anything about making cheese or plant-based cheeses and I'm like what what year was this let's let's start there this was about seven, 20 i started the company in 2011 that's when i incorporated it i think okay uh, i started experimenting around about the same time i i did not know anything at all about making cheese i didn't know anything about the food business uh i've got a book out of the library on cheese i looked at stuff on the internet and just experimented until I came up with something. Huh. Because I'm trying to remember, like, what vegan cheese looked like in 2011. Um, 
I think, you know, it didn't melt very well. Um, they they all they had different sort of hues of yellow, but they, like they, it was it was pretty grim, as I recall. Yeah, Deo was just getting started. And, okay. Uh, I think they they made a huge um, contribution to advancing it, and then the 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 most interesting one was Dr. Cow because Dr. Cow um, was making good vegan cheese very early on, and they still are. Okay. And in fact, I tried to invest in Dr. Cow, and they didn't want my investment. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so so you decide. Okay, I don't. I, I know what I like. I don't know anything about the food business or about making cheese. So, was the book about making vegan cheese or just making cheese in general? Just making cheese. So how did how did you? I'm trying to think. How, how would you translate the instructions for I don't know rennet and and milk and bacteria and all that into you know almonds and cashews and what you know. You know, it was just background in the sense that um, I, I, I didn't, I had no idea how cheese was made, and reading a book helped me understand that. But then I really had to go back to basics and work out how to make this particular cheese. And there were there was so much trial and error, and uh -huh. so much frustration and disappointment. <laughs> Did you have, were you able to hire people, you know, food experts and stylists and things like that? You know, I, I wish I had. <laughs> I had an assistant to help me, you know, do the, the stuff. And, you know, she she um, did a lot of the um, experiments that I plotted out and helped me with keeping track of what was what so we could reproduce things, um, replicate them. Because a lot of times you do something and then you forget how you did it. And that's mm. the best one. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I really d didn't. I didn't go into this in the what I would call the American way, which would be raise a pile of money, get a bunch of experts, and build a company. That's how mm. Kite Hill did it, um, and I, I just did it. Didn't I? Did it in my kitchen. Okay. Did you think you were going to succeed? <laughs> so, firstly, I, I don't handle failure that well so i <laughs> i've never been comfortable with failure although i think it's perfectly respectable to fail but um i didn't really know what success looked like to be honest with you i i didn't picture the company as it is now i didn't picture the the, the brand being on shelves in whole foods and and you know, I just, I just pictured making nice cheese, which I could sell in the neighborhood in upstate New York, basically, and maybe New York City. And then it evolved. It just grew. Uh -huh. So what, when did you um, when did you first pivot into like, when did you first think, oh, I've got something here? You know, there definitely was a moment which was when um, we got distribution uh, with a major distributor and um, we were not, we started getting into Whole Foods in in the Northeast, Whole Foods in um, the Mid-Atlantic 
um, region. And before I was, you know, we were driving around with a cooler of cheese from one store to the next trying to sell it. And then one day, you know, a 53-foot trailer pulled up to the facility and we loaded a pallet of cheese onto it. And I knew then something was happening. Uh-huh. Gotcha. And so when you, when you started making, did you have a sense like we want to make like the, the big contribution you wanted to make was just people were going to taste this and be able to let go of dairy? Or were you thinking like we're going to replace the cheese on pizza or like what was were, were there any sort of fantasies of, of impact? Not really. I, I mean, I just wanted to make something that people would like and would then eat other vegans like me would then not be frustrated. Mm. And then, you know, their friends maybe would taste this and go, wow, that's, that's not bad. I, I never had a, a grand vision for this thing. Now it's changed now. I mean, now I've got a, a, a professional CEO and I've got a board of directors and investors and, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole different thing now. Hmm. We haven't mentioned the name of the company. Now is probably not a, not a bad time to say it. So the brand is Treeline, T R E E L I N E, and the the company name is the Gardener Cheese Company. The Gardener and Cheese Company. Gardener Cheese, and the the reason why it's the two different names is when I started the company, I needed to incorporate, and I I was I, I used to do a lot more gardening than I do now, but I was. I was busy gardening and weeding and doing all sorts of things. And I thought, well, what what better name than a gardener? You know, it's a nurturing and instead of farming cows, we're gardening. That's how I got that name. Gotcha. And tree line is comes from the fact that the, the cheese is made from tree nuts. <laughs> so. The name Treeline comes from my taking a legal pad and writing out pages and pages of names. <laughs> and um, one day I was walking in the woods in Mohonk near my house uh, in the, in the Shawangunks, and I was just struggling. I'd written down like 200 names, and I looked out. I was walking along this trail and I looked across this kind of gorge and at the line of trees and I went, ah, tree line. That's it. All right. So, so another sort of seat of the pants decision that seems to have worked out. Very much so. Okay. All right. Uh, so what's, uh, what's in the works? So you're in, uh, I guess like 3000 stores now. Um, I so what I just noticed uh, some someone I saw someone from the 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 glass door behind you walking around in a mask. So I guess you're you're still in, you're still in production and you're following all the COVID nineteen regulations. Has, has are people still buying? Yes, uh, people are buying. Uh, we found the sales to stores have dropped a little bit uh, because I think the the customers are focusing very much on staples at the moment. And the distributors are focusing on bringing them the staples. So things have slowed a bit. It's picked up in online. Our online store is as busy as it has ever, more busy than ever. In fact, we're just constantly going out of stock because the demand is so high. 
And then uh, we supply purple carrot meal kits, and that's grown enormously. Okay. So you, you know um, Andy? I, I don't know. I don't no. know. I think I've met him, but I don't know him personally. Okay. So you're just supplying them? The... Yeah. Huh. Um, and then what's in the pipeline, we are about to release three new cream cheeses, which will be plain strawberry and chive and onion. Uh, those will come out. They've been delayed a little bit because of the pandemic. And then we are working on um, making slices and shreds. Um, those are in development, and we hope to have those out towards the end of the year. Um, and th th that's something that's really exciting because I think I think that the plant-based movement is focusing a little bit too much on just being plant-based and not enough on on health and sustainability and. I'm very concerned about the use of coconut oil in a lot of plant-based products. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of issues with coconut oil, and the the most obvious one is the um, the uh, health issue because it's just loaded with saturated fat. And so I'm I, that's something I'm really concerned about. And if you the the um, I don't want to denigrate any competitive products, but if you look at some of the the competitive products, you know if you eat one slice of this cheese, you're getting 25% of your RDA of saturated fat. Mm -hmm. You can just eat one slice. So you know you're going to eat way more than that. So one of the design briefs for the our new slices and shreds is no coconut oil. And I'm really excited about that because we're going to bring out a, a fantastic product that's going to be unique in its not having coconut oil. Ah, what what is the base? Is it cashews? It's going to be cashews, um, and then the oil part of it will come from sunflowers, mm -hmm. sunflower oil, which is a, a more sustainable crop. It doesn't have the saturated fat. Um, it, there are lots of reasons why it's it's preferable. Gotcha. What can you tell me about cashews? Because I've been reading things about the cashew industry that aren't so flattering either. What do you, what do you, you know, do, is it true? Like, what do you do to, to mitigate that potential harm? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of issues with cashews. Um, the, the, the most significant, I think, is the uh, labor problems in that to get the cashew out of the, the shell, um, requires some some hard work and it's the, the the kernel itself the cashew kernel is surrounded by a kind of a tar which is quite um unpleasant it's in the, it has some similarities to the oil in poison ivy oh and so you know some people actually have allergic reactions to cashew fruit because of that anyhow the the a lot of the cashews in the world are, are hand processed and the people who process them end up getting this black tar on their hands, which doesn't really come off ever, like ever. Oh. <laughs> it also causes burns and things. So as a company, um, uh, Treeline sources its cashews from mechanically processed producers 
uh, which are in Brazil. The, the majority of the problems with cashew nuts are in Vietnam and India. Mm-hmm. And we've made a decision that we're just not going to buy those nuts. We're going to get them from Brazil where they are machine processed. Uh, the plants that we get the, the cashews from are audited. And so we have a pretty good sense that people are treated decently. I feel very strongly about this. We could save money by sourcing our nuts from Vietnam. This is very much a live issue at the moment because the primary, one of the primary markets for Vietnamese cashews is China. And the bottom has just dropped out of that market. So we are getting uh, offers of cashew nuts at ridiculously low prices. And mm. I just, I'm declining them because I just don't want to support that, that type of industry. Mm. And as a vegan with <laughs> my background, I don't want to have to explain to people that I care more about cows than I do about people because I don't, I care equally. Mm. And I, I feel terribly uncomfortable with the way cashews are processed in Vietnam. Hmm. <clears throat> yeah, it seems like there's um, a challenge in your business, given that I can I can buy you know a tub of Philadelphia cream cheese for you know a dollar thirty nine. Um, that like there like there's almost like a curve of like how pure do you want to get? Um, consider you know considering that you're that you know the USDA um, subsidizes dairy. Um, that you know, you could go for organic. You could go for like. Do, are there are there areas where you where you struggle to balance the cost of the end product with the inputs? Yes, for sure. Um, organic is a good example. Uh, organic cashews are significantly more expensive than non-organic, and then on top of it, a very large percentage of supposedly organic cashew nuts coming out of um, Vietnam and India are just not organic. Hmm. They just aren't. Uh-huh. There's, a, there's, just a, it, 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 there's just so much abuse going on that, that I, I would like to be organic, but to get really real organic nuts would make this product just so expensive that people wouldn't afford it. Hmm. It's more important to to deal with the dairy issue. I feel the uh, treatment of cows is so appalling and the effects of the dairy industry on uh, the climate and on the environment are so extreme that for me, the first priority is to tackle dairy and then the other stuff will follow. Gotcha. And on on your website, you talk about, uh, I haven't seen this uh, put this way before, Meat is the other dairy product. Can you, for, for folks who are, who are you know, following this podcast who haven't been with me through the beginning, can you explain how meat is a dairy product? Yeah, it's, it's simpler than meets the eye. You just have to ask yourself, what happens to the cows when they can't produce milk anymore? And it's simple. They get killed. They turn into hamburgers. And they, the, the, so it, a, a, a typical cow has a lifespan of, say, 25 years, but a dairy cow can only give milk for about five. 
And there's no business in the world that's going to keep supporting something that's unproductive. You can't afford to keep put your cows out to pasture and produce dairy. And then in addition to that, um, every cow in order to produce milk has to have a calf and all the male calves are useless to the dairy industry. So they go for slaughter as well. And um, the, the veal industry is completely intertwined with the dairy industry. And mm. I think most people today are pretty aware of how appalling veal is. But, but veal and dairy are one and the same thing in my mind. Mm. So sort of coming full circle a little bit, do you feel like when, when people can liberate themselves from from dairy and from meat. Does that affect um, how compassionate they can be towards other humans? I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I just don't know. I think that the, the vegans, you'd like to think that people who are vegan have a heightened sensitivity to other human beings and other animals, but that isn't always the case. And I think we we bring with us all of our failings as human beings. Mm -hmm. And addressing diet is just addressing one issue. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think you become a good person by giving up dairy. You become good in relation to that aspect of your life. But if you want to be a good person, it's there's much more <laughs> to address. So I, I personally felt liberated when I gave up dairy and mm -hmm. I gave up meat because I, I felt I was living a lie. I always felt I needed to be, I believed in being kind to animals, but by eating them, I was living a lie. I wasn't being kind and that's why I changed. But I can't say I became a better person in any other way. Mm. There are other issues, maybe I'm, unkind to people and or you know doing other things that are not great uh-huh so may, maybe the uh you know i think one, one of the tricks is maybe that to not to create this false um dichotomy between humans and animals right so that the, you know within in in a lot of discussions in the vegan community it's almost like we love we love the animals and how can people be so cruel and stupid um, whereas in other other communities, um, they see vegans as you know uh, preferencing animals over humans. I think you know that your your perspective coming to it from all you know all life is worthy of 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 respect. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure what I'm saying here, but it seems like there's something there. Look, I, I think vegans get criticized for being difficult and um, maybe loving animals more than people. I think that's a terribly unfair criticism because there's the very few things that you can do in your life that are as, as selfless as saying, well, I respect life and I'm doing this because I, I don't want to cause suffering. I don't want to add to climate change. I'm concerned about poverty and the, the way food is allocated in our society. Those are all very selfless things. And I think it's very unfair of 
a, a meat eater to criticize a vegan for being difficult for making those choices. Mm. Okay. Um, that's inherently compassionate, which is inherently good. Um, I do think that there is a bit of misanthropy, if that's the right way to pronounce it, misanthropy, <laughs> um, around vegans, for sure. And I think that's understandable because we see this injustice all the time and we get angry about it. Yeah, and I, I got angry in South Africa. I, I, I'd get into yelling matches at university. I was angry about apartheid and I think I was right to be. Yeah. Now, definitely it's probably not the most effective way to advocate your cause, you know, to get in someone's face and tell them that they suck. That's not a great way to get a point across, but it's sort of understandable. Right. Yeah. And I guess, uh, you know, the, the Ravonia trial was full of uh, difficult people. Yeah. <laughs> That uh, yeah, I can't remember the the, the exact quote, but some of that uh, you know, be in in the face of injustice, um, being difficult is not a a sin. You know, when my father died, somebody came up to me after his funeral and said, "Your father was the most difficult man I ever met." <laughs> and I thought about it and I said, "That's fine. Yeah. He didn't go along with things." He was right to be difficult. Right. Maybe he could have refined his message a little bit, the way he delivered it. But they're difficult mm -hmm. issues. It's, it's okay to be difficult. Right. And, it's, and I love how at the same time you're, you know, you're firm, like in the, on your website, you're very clear about the evils of animal agriculture and of dairy. And at the same time, you're, solution is to provide some to provide people with something that's better yeah i don't think that you have to kind of um suffer to live a more compassionate life you know some people think that you have to suffer and it's good to suffer but i think you could have fantastic food and have a really good time so why not right and that's uh that's probably the way to begin to convert people. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm sure you've been to like vegan potlucks and things like that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that food is amazing. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just fantastic. Right. So it's all, all gain and no pain here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, so, um, let us know where we can find Treeline on the web, and if you know if people can follow you and where they can get it. Sure. So um, easiest way to find Treeline is to just go to the website treelinecheese.com. Okay. And on the website is a store finder which we've just revamped, which is really quite granular, and it'll show you exactly where you can get a particular. Um, type of cheese because we can't get every type to every store. That's just not really feasible. Uh, you can also buy it online. Um, if you buy purple carrots, um, meal kits, you can get it that way. And then it's in um, Whole Foods all over the country, Kroger, lots of small um, chains, health food chains like Mom's Organic Markets and uh, Lassen's and 
just a, a bunch of smaller chains as well as the big Kroger's and we are in a, in a major kind of expansion mode. We've got a new sales team. So you're going to see it in, I think you're going to see this number of stores doubling in the next two years easily. Great. Great. So everyone go out, go out, give it a try. And now you have the story behind the brand. <laughs> and uh, Michael, it's been such an honor to, to talk to you, to hear about the, you know, the arc of your journey and to see where you're, you're putting your energy now to make the world a better place. So thank you so much for all you do and for taking the time today. It's a pleasure. And I think it's serendipitous that you were in South Africa shortly before this. So you've maybe got a renewed insight into where where I'm coming from. And also that you have your own connection with South Africa, which is interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, I could I could live there when when all when all this mess is over. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I like hiking and and I like simple living. I think I uh yeah. I, I could I could definitely make a life there. Oh. Beautiful place. Great people. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you. And, and best of luck. And let's stay in touch. Thank you. Appreciate it. All Bye. Right. Take care. Hey, well, I hope you found that as fascinating, interesting and inspiring as I did. If you want to learn a little bit more about Michael and about Treeline Cheese and about his illustrious family, you can check out the show notes at plantyourself.com slash 398. So I want to uh, thank the people who have um, gifted uh, money to the podcast over the past month. Uh, I stopped doing the uh the the roll call of everyone. Um, I'll, I'll get back to it, but I really want to kind of highlight the the people who've stepped up um, quite recently, who've made a big big difference. And since there are people who have stepped up who request to remain anonymous, but I'll I'll read those who have agreed to let me share their names on the air: Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Zidarowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone. Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owens, and Sagar Naik for your generous support of the podcast. I thank you. So in running news, I did three miles today, uh, which is the first run I've done in about three weeks. I'd done some walks, but uh, the jet lag and some, uh, some other intestinal issues that I probably picked up in South Africa or on a plane um, have kept me... Uh, doing nothing much but gardening, which which is a lot. But I, today was the first day I went for a three-mile run. I was about uh, three-quarters of a mile into it. I was actually talking to Josh on the phone when I saw my buddy Eamon running in the other direction. And, you know, human contact is nice. So we ran together for about a mile and a half. And by together, I mean on the other opposite sides of a road, shouting our conversation back and forth and uh, in between the cars. Uh, but Eamon was going a little too fast. He was doing about an 8.30 pace. And so after about two miles, I said goodbye and I jog walked home. So that felt really good. It felt like, OK, like, you know, when you run and you're, you're doing something and then you stop doing it for a while, you feel like, well, maybe I don't do this anymore. But the run just reminded me like, yeah, this is who I am. This is what the body that I have inhabited does and likes doing and wants to do. So it felt Really, really good. So in garden news, tons of garden news, because we've we've really, uh, you know, been pushed into 
you know, taking the whole self-reliance thing and community reliance uh, much more seriously. So I was uh, rereading the, the Bible, uh, Will Bonsell's Essential Guide to Radical Self-Reliant Gardening, which I uh, podcasted an interview with, with the author, um, I think it was August 2017. Um, and it's um, planyourself.com slash 224 if you want to check it out. And I got Will on the phone, and so we're going to be talking later today for the next uh, published podcast about his Scatterseed project. And um, we'll see if we can uh, raise some interest and some support and promotion and funding to help this incredibly important project, which you will learn about in the next few days. But anyway, our garden is all about calorie crops right now. So we got um, 10 pounds or 20 pounds of wheat. We're going to we're going to plow that into the back meadow. Uh, we got a few pounds of buckwheat and probably about 10 pounds of uh, Burbank russet potatoes that are going to go into a bed today. And then all the usual stuff, the beans and the squash and the tomatoes and the cucumbers. So really taking seriously this idea of you know, in an era of very, very shaky global food supply chains, um, that the shorter the food supply chain, the more robust, resilient and anti-fragile it is. So we're going to be trying to grow a lot of food for ourselves and also for neighbors and food banks. Um, so right now it's a lot of soil prep, a lot of hoeing, uh, weeding, and soon uh, we'll get more and more crops into the ground. So let's go out with the theme music of the show um, from uh, Will Ridenauer, the Cora player, who has graciously allowed me to use the song Sabali Don, the Dance of Peace, as a theme music. Haven't played it for a while, wasn't using it in, in uh, the South African edition, just because one extra layer of editing just seemed too much. Um, and the beginning, I'm, you know, I'm sort of less formal now and just trying to talk to people. It feels, feels good. But I do want to keep the vibe going, so here's uh, 20 or 30 seconds of Sabali Don to um, transition you onto whatever you're going to do next. So as always, be well, my friends. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinoski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lacerte, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carl Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. 
Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Izatuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Mirani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Dan Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Ashra Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosalind McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Lehman, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Karts, Dean Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganshik, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, and Michael Lushton for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.